0: This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. If Mayor Jacob Fry has his way, Minneapolis will soon have a new police chief. Mayor Fry named the deputy mayor of Newark, New Jersey, Brian O'Hara, as his choice to lead the department. Here's a bit of what Brian O'Hara had to say yesterday.
1: The problem of serious street crime is urgent, and our communities demand and deserve good police to deal with that urgently at the same time i commit to hold all police officers accountable to the values of our community and i invite the community to hold us all accountable as well
0: police chief is a big job and a challenging job since the death of george floyd at the hands of minneapolis police officers in may of 2020 the department has lost hundreds of officers crime has spiked and the Justice Department is investigating the civil rights record of the police department. In the meantime, Mayor Fry has moved to consolidate oversight of the police, fire, and emergency management departments under Community Safety Commissioner Cedric Alexander. And Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry joins me now to talk more about his choice for police chief. Mayor, thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Mike.
0: What was it about Brian O'Hara that made him stand out to you over the other two finalists for the job?
2: Well, it was first what the community has been asking for, and then it's the assets that Deputy Mayor Brian O'Hara can deliver. Uh, For about 10 months, we had a long process of community engagement, of listening sessions in every precinct in the city of an online survey, uh, and then a volunteer search committee that brought together finalists. And what people were asking for was a change maker, a reform-minded chief, and someone that had a whole lot of experience of getting the job done and working hand-in-hand hand with our diverse communities. That is exactly what he brings. Uh, he's got quite a bit of experience running a Department of Public Safety in Newark, New Jersey, uh, with about 1,900 people in total. Um, you know, 900 police officers, 600 firefighters, about 300 civilians. And he has experience managing a consent decree as well in New York, uh, working real reforms through a process to ultimately shift the culture of the department from within. That's exactly what we needed. And so uh, I'm really pleased with the caliber uh, that he brings, and we're really excited to get him approved.
0: He is an outsider, would be the first chief hired from outside the department in 16 years. What are the advantages and the disadvantages of hiring an outsider for this job?
2: You know, I think there are, as you mentioned, advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantages are that he is not as familiar with this department specifically, but those are pieces that he can learn. Uh, the advantages are that he doesn't have ties, um, and speaking As someone who is not directly from here, uh, you can see this beautiful city in a whole different perspective than if you grew up here. Um, That's not to say better or worse, it's just different. And I can't tell you how excited he is to be here at this particular time, in this particular moment, recognizing that the bright lights are very much shining on our city right now, and we need to perform, we need to do things differently. And what he told me is that he wants to be this example that other cities can follow. We want to set the tone for policing nationwide. uh, And, you know, I'm confident under his leadership, we can make the the right changes to get us there.
0: And as we heard him him say in that clip from yesterday, uh, reducing street crime is important to rebuild trust. How does that happen? And what have you talked to him about uh, doing that while still respecting people's civil rights in the city?
2: First, we already have a plan that has been rolled out just this last week in Operation Endeavor, which is a comprehensive and integrated approach incorporating both law enforcement and violence prevention and working with a number of different jurisdictions. Uh, Brian O'Hara is going to get briefed in on that exact proposal. Uh, you know, he's talking also about recruiting in the right kind of officers that we want to see in this department, those that are community-minded uh, and have these deep connections uh, with the, the residents of our city. He has had a lot of success in Newark working on exactly that. And, you know, I'll note that in Newark, he did, in fact, see a reduction in gun violence in one of their lowest levels ever in history, specifically of gun violence. And, Uh, You know, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, gun violence is that epidemic that we're dealing with in our city and nationwide and needs to be dealt with quite acutely.
0: Hmm. As you well know, the police department has had a long and expensive history of excessive force settlements uh, going back well before George Floyd was murdered and well before you were the mayor. What is it about the culture of the Minneapolis Police Department that has made it so hard
2: to change? You know, for a long time, we've needed to shift the culture of this department. Uh, And I'll tell you, there are so many officers that are in there right now that have not jumped ship, that have stayed around because they believe in this city and they're committed to it. And I'll tell you, the officers that we are recruiting in now, they're very wide-eyed about the change that we want to see in this, in this institution of policing. Uh, and, you know, look, we there are there's systemic issues, uh, systemic issues of systemic racism that we've seen nationwide. Uh, and our police department is, is not any different. Uh, we do have issues. We fully recognize that, which is why um, we ultimately want to see uh, one consent decree set up where we can make these proper changes. Um, it's not just one instance. It's not just one case. Uh, these are broad-based issues that we need to be dealing with, and it's good to have somebody as a chief on board that has done this before. He's very well-respected uh, by you know, both local and, and federal individuals that have been involved in these consent decrees, and I'm, I am, uh, I'm confident that he's going to be a great person to help lead us through this process, not just in changing policy, uh, but also changing the culture itself. Because at the end of the day, it's the culture that's so much more important. And if you set a tone, you set the the right tone for the right people to want to join and the right people to be inspired to do this very difficult job of of policing, then I feel like you can make the real change. And that's exactly what he's been saying.
0: Other mayors, other chiefs have tried to set that tone in the past. How, how do you ensure that the orders from the mayor, the commissioner, the chief, and the commanders are are actually going to be carried out in the ranks of the department?
2: Well, first off, he's not going to change anything overnight, nor will our commissioner, Cedric Alexander. But we've made a massive change, a change that advocates of question two argued for for a year and a half, which is in an office of community safety. Uh, This office can provide that oversight, can provide that management, and you'll have an individual in the commissioner that is working on these issues of oversight and accountability of all of these different entities every single day so that if results aren't being met, you got somebody digging in every single day to make sure the job of, of culture shift, accountability, safety it gets done in a comprehensive fashion. Uh, and so I think that's one of the big difference and differences in the way we're setting this up. You know, we're going to have more of an integrated approach than most any city in the entire country. Um, really, violence prevention work, working directly, working with officers, officers working with firefighters, um, making sure that our 911 dispatchers, which are the first responders of the first responders, are very much involved as well.
0: You've touched on the consent decree, which uh, I, I... Here you're expecting from the Justice Department. Of course, there's a state consent decree in place as well. Um, O'Hara has experience working with that in Newark. Uh, What was it specifically that you saw with his work there that makes you think he can be effective here in dealing with a consent
2: decree? Uh, to be clear, there's not a state consent decree in place. We are working towards an agreement with mm. the state to be differentiated with a consent decree that we would potentially expect out of the Justice Department. Um, we're looking for one overarching uh, set of standards and rules and then one monitor that can help run uh, and determine whether we've been met- meeting the metrics or not. That, that's what we're working towards right now. And, and yes, as you mentioned, having somebody in Brian O'Hara that has done this before, uh, has seen results from it, has improved accountability and safety at the same time. That's what we're looking for. You know, a big part of being mayor is getting the right butts in the right seats. It's getting the specific experts doing the specific jobs that they know how to do best and have more skill than any mayor potentially would. That's what we're in the process of doing. And I'll tell you, especially after the passage of question one and this new executive uh, strong mayor system, Mm -hmm. uh, legislative council, um, we are getting candidates that we have never gotten before. We're getting a caliber of candidate that is national class. And whether that's, you know, the public works director and Margaret Anderson Kelleher, who previously ran MnDOT, um, that's you know, one of the main general counsels at the state and Chris, Kristen Anderson who came on to be our city attorney. That's in Cedric Alexander, our commissioner of safety, and now Brian O'Hara. The caliber we're getting is, is really extraordinary. And having these people in these right seats is such a huge part of shifting how our city serves people on a daily basis.
0: Oh, let me ask you about uh, Commissioner Alexander. Um, how? What will his role be in working with the new chief? And does having two people in charge of this strengthen accountability, or does it dilute the accountability a little bit?
2: Oh, it substantially strengthens accountability because you've got somebody doing it on a daily basis. And specifically, this Commissioner Alexander's role is not just involving police. Hmm. Uh, The chief of police reports to him, but so does the chief of the fire department. So do the directors of emergency management, of 911 and violence prevention. So his job is to oversee all of that work on a daily basis. Um, Now, granted, you need the right people in the right seats and those other respective departments that he oversees to have the best possible results um but but this is a model that that we know and we've seen in other areas to work well uh and it's one I feel strongly about implementing and you know this is the big moment for unity here because um this was the thing that advocates for question 2 were campaigning on advertising for you know a year and a half almost mm. uh and so we're doing it now um this is the time for us to say, hey, we're all in on this topic. There certainly are other areas of of disagreement that we saw, but this ain't one of them. Let's get on board.
0: Mayor, I'm sure you know there are a lot of people running for office in Minnesota this year who are using Minneapolis and uh, crime in Minneapolis as an indictment of Democrats and many incumbents. Uh, What would your message be to folks who are doing that, and maybe more importantly to people who might be afraid to come to Minneapolis because of this perception of that crime is out of control.
2: First off, Minneapolis is an extraordinary city. Uh, It's, it is a safe city. And like every major city in the entire country, we have seen an uptick in crime over these last couple of years. Although I'll say it's either plateauing or in some cases, like as was mentioned, homicides, it's, it's slightly dropping right now. Um, and, you know, I would, I would just note the position that I've had from day one, and I know that so many Democrats have had uh, from early on, which was, you know, I've been against um, some of these notions of defunding and abolishing uh, police. I've, I've said from the very, very beginning that we need deep culture shift and change, we need reform, uh, and at the same time, we need police. Um, police are an important part of our government service that we provide are they the only part of course not um and i think the message that you hear from from democrats the message that you see residents um loudly pushing right now in our city uh is that we need to be working with our police we need we need good constitutional policing uh and we we want to see that partnership in our neighborhoods
0: do you think you'll have a hard time selling uh the case to the city council to approve brian o'hara as chief
2: I never want to speak from the city council, but no, I don't think that we'll have a hard time given it's the, the experience that Brian O'Hara has. Uh, people are looking for a change maker, a reform-minded chief, uh, someone that has had experience not just in pushing for these changes, but actually getting them done. And this is what we're delivering with, with Brian O'Hara. And so, uh, you know, I know I don't have a specific vote count for you, if that's what you're asking for, but I do believe that he will, in fact, be confirmed.
0: And when do you expect him to take over?
2: Uh, so the the process will work through largely in October. Um, so I don't have the exact date in front of me, um, but we're we're looking kind of towards the end of October, maybe very early November is final confirmation. Mm-hmm. So within a, within a little over a month.
0: Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it.
0: That's uh, Mayor Jacob Fry of Minneapolis, who announced his choice for the city's new police chief, Brian O'Hara, yesterday. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's Friday. We're talking about Minnesota politics this hour. Later, we're going to take a look uh, back at another interesting week in the campaign, but first, we want to meet another candidate. The 8th Congressional District covers a huge area of Minnesota from the Arrowhead in the north almost all the way down to the metro area. It includes the Iron Range, Virginia, Hibbing, Grand Rapids, and it includes the uh, the state's fourth-largest city, Duluth. For decades, it was strong DFL territory, but in 2016, it went for President Trump for president, and in 2018, Republican Pete Stauber won the 8th District seat in Congress. He won again in 2020 and he's seeking a third term this year. Now, running against him this time is an eight-year DFL incumbent of the Minnesota House, Jen Schultz of Duluth. She's also an economics professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and Jen Schultz joins me now. Thanks so much for coming on today.
3: Well, thanks for having me, Mike.
0: I should tell uh, our listeners, we we also invited Congressman Stauber to come on. He couldn't make it work in his schedule today, but we hope to get him on before the election. So, Jen Schultz, what made you decide to run for Congress this year instead of maybe running for re-election to the legislature?
3: Well, honestly, it wasn't on my bucket list, uh, but neither was running for the Minnesota House. It's just something that happened. I I was happy working, um, as a professor and working on healthcare reform and policy. And then I worked closely with my predecessor, Tom Huntley, who was a state legislator for 22 years. I decided I needed to run to continue working on healthcare reform and to work on higher education. Uh, I've, i did it for eight years. I decided to retire and go back to teaching and I was going to write a book on healthcare reform, um, but people asked me to run against Pete Stauber because they believe he failed the 8th District and the people who live here. Um, and no one was uh, announcing their, their run. And uh, a lot of people called me. And, you know, I I, I had a very successful career as a state legislator, only serving in a divided legislature and getting a lot of good things done for the state and for my district. And I want to take... What I've learned um, to Congress and show folks how you can work across the aisle and um, try to reduce the amount of polarization that we've seen and um, really do good good work for the families and for our community so everyone can thrive. You know, I'm from a small town. My mother, uh, after she divorced my father because he was an alcoholic after coming back from serving in Vietnam... um, We really struggled, and I am where I am today because of government help. You know, I I put myself through college and grad school with the help of Pell grants and loans, and I attribute that to the government and working really hard. Hmm. And I know that it can be used for good things, and that's my intention is to give back to my community that helped me be successful.
0: Hmm. Uh, When you look at the eighth district. Um, And it's changed a little bit this year because of redistricting. But it really seems to have uh, made this shift from voting for Democrats to uh, a majority voting for Republicans over the past few years. And it's not unusual in rural Minnesota, not unusual in rural America. So what uh, you're running as a Democrat, what are you saying to sort of try to counter that trend?
3: Well, you know, it's after redistricting. This district is is larger, hmm. and we go all the way down. We include Forest Lake is now the second largest community in the district. Uh, we go all the way uh, down to north of Stillwater. But what what I'm hearing is that they're tired of the blame game. They're tired of the polarization. They just want their elected representative to get things done for themselves and their families and their community. And I, you know, I, th- I think people are ready for a change because we've given Pete Stauber four years in Congress, and he has done virtually nothing for our community. In fact, he's been an obstructionist, and he's done more damage by voting against um, protecting our right to vote, uh, voting against the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, giving us rights to reproductive health and contraception, um, and he's simply not upholding his oath to the Constitution uh, he, doesn't, he believes in the big lie. He's proud of his endorsement from Trump. And the district is going to change. We, 55% went with Trump. It's very similar to the first congressional district. 54% of those voters voted for Trump um, after you take into account redistricting. But I feel the momentum. I'm listening to everybody throughout the district. I've been traveling throughout the district every day. Um, and I feel like this is the year that things are going to change, uh, that we're going to flip this district back to blue. And in my career, I get 70% or more of my of votes in my district. A lot of independents and Republicans vote for me because they know I'm an independent thinker, that I don't always vote with my party if I think it's bad for my constituents. Um, and I've, I've never, I, you know, I represent the little person people that don't have pay lobbyists for them. And we have plenty of lobbyists for healthcare, care, for, for drug companies, for fossil fuel industries, for corporate interests. I'm there representing working families. And I've done that for eight years. And that's what people want. And, you know, I'm not even I've pledged not to take any corporate PAC money. All of our donations are for individuals, mostly from the eighth, mostly from Minnesota. My opponent, takes a lot of money from corporate interests. He's, his votes are bought. He takes a lot of outside money outside of our state. Um, and you can tell by his voting record.
0: We're talking with Jen Schultz. She's the DFL candidate for Congress in Minnesota's eighth district running against Republican Pete Stauber. And I, I'll just mention again, we did invite Congressman Stauber to come on. He couldn't make it work this Friday, but uh, we're still hoping uh, in the future that he will come on. Um, Okay, after listening to everything you just said about the district, um, when you look at the uh, public opinion polls, most people are not happy with the job President Biden has been doing. And many people are concerned about inflation, the effect it's having on them being able to afford, uh, you know, gas, groceries, everyday expenses. Uh, What are you hearing from voters on that? And what are you saying to voters about that as you campaign?
3: Well, I think they are very excited when I tell them I'm an economist, so I can work on those economic issues for them. Um, we need to go after many things that are no longer working in our economy. And, you know, I'm I'm not from a wealthy family. I'm not wealthy myself. I feel uh, the economic issues as well. Uh, you know, but they just passed a bill to um, keep the government running, and that included a billion dollars to help low-income families pay for um heating their homes so we do need to do things i i disagree with those of uh, uh, um people's view on president biden i'm i'm so impressed at everything they've been able to accomplish the last two months um and they're going to do more before they recess uh but um i i i just be- really truly believe that uh we need to go do our jobs uh fix things we can fix. And that includes taking on corporate interests, um, making sure we have taxes that are fair, making sure we're investing in education and infrastructure. Um, And I'm proud of my track record as a state legislator working on things across the aisle to close tax loopholes. I fixed something called the family glitch that makes healthcare more affordable to those who get private insurance if it's their premiums are too high. They're allowed to buy into the Minnesota Care Program. Minnesota is the first state to fix that problem. Um, we, as a state, you know, passed the Democrats passed large tax reductions for working families. I worked on increasing wages for personal care assistants. Um, I passed legislation to protect older adults, and as chair of Human Services and Finance, passed hist- historic investments in mental health and human services. And I want to do that at the federal level for not just uh, my district and the state, but for the entire country.
0: Let me uh read for you a couple of things that Pete Stauber has said about you in a column that he wrote in the Duluth News Tribune. He said you have an insatiable appetite to grow government through tax increases, and that you radically and dangerously voted to allow cities to defund and disarm our police. How do you respond to that?
3: Well uh You know, I think, um, well, first, he's afraid to debate me, I think. He's not agreeing to debates. He's not sitting down with the newspapers um, to, you know, to answer questions. It's his job as an elected official to do that. Um, He, you know, I'm lucky. My husband's a criminologist. I hear a lot about policing and police reform And that's just simply not true. I support our law enforcement 100%. I am opposed to defunding the police. We need to fully fund our law enforcement and our um, first responders. Uh, It's about protecting people and protecting our democracy. It's Pete Stauber who doesn't support law enforcement. He voted against many bills to fund our police. One was the American Recovery Act. There was over $350 billion in there for law enforcement. He voted against um, money in, there was a package of four bills to help our public safety. He voted against two of those bills last week. He voted against investigating the insurrection that killed police officers, Capitol and D.C. police, and injured 114. So the person that is not supportive of law enforcement is in fact Pete Stauber, not me. I fully support law enforcement, I understand the importance of law enforcement to protect people, to protect our democracy and our democratic institutions.
0: An issue that has always come up in the 8th District uh, with the Iron Range is mining, and mining for precious metals, copper and nickel. Where do you stand on those proposals?
3: I am 100% supportive of our miners and our mining industry, and I've talked to all groups, labor, pro-mining pro-environmental groups, uh, people throughout the eighth. And it is we have a long history of mining in northeast Minnesota. It's part of the culture. And we need to actually invest because what I've learned is that everyone agrees on one thing, and that is we cannot pollute the water. Our water is going to be more valuable than anything else soon, and we can't pollute it. And what we need to do is invest in the research and the technology to make sure we don't pollute the water, regardless of the type of mining we do. And Stauber says he supports our mining industry, but he has done nothing, nothing, no action to actually do support it. There's a, a technology available that they're testing at a research institute called NRRI at UMD. And they have the, they've developed the technology to filter out the sulfur sulfates, uh, and they tested it in Aurora's wastewater treatment facility. And it's much cheaper than reverse osmosis. So I am a true believer in science and technology. What I would do is bring federal funding back to the district to invest in that research so it can be scaled up uh, and, and help in other ways. That We need to be recycling steel and copper. We should be manufacturing steel on the range. Stauber has taken none of these actions to support our miners or our mining industry. He's voted against the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Both of those bills contained uh, incentives to use American minerals for batteries, for electric vehicles, and for microchips. That is a direct vote against the economy of northeast Minnesota. Uh,
0: All the northern uh, reservations are in the district now. Uh, What are you doing to try to appeal to Native American voters?
3: Yes, we have seven tribes now in the 8th District, and I've been meeting with uh, tribal members, leaders, and uh, tribal councils to understand and really listen to what they need. They They want our elected officials, people to respect their treaty rights, to understand that they're sovereign nations, and they need to be treated as sovereign nations. But they also need resources. So I was up in Grand Portage. They need a wastewater treatment facility. They need housing and access to good health care. Um, in Boyce Fort by Net Lake, they have, many people have to drive 50 miles to get to a polling location in Virginia. So there's, there's a lot of diverse needs. This district is so large, but I am eager to help and work alongside um, the tribal members and their leaders um, to get them what they need and to work with the agencies, so we can respect their 1854 treaty, Ceded treaty, seated uh, territory treaty, where we have to protect where they hunt, gather, and fish. Um, and they, you know, I, I I feel like Pete Stauber has failed them too. He actively campaigned against the Secretary of Interior Deb Holland, who's Native American, and I don't think they'll let him forget that, but. I don't see him out meeting with with tribal members to listen to what their needs are.
0: Uh, Everyone says it's a tough environment for Democrats. You know, usually the president's uh, party does poorly in this first midterm. Do you really think you can win this year or are you uh, trying to keep it close for Democrats? Uh, What do you think is going to happen here?
3: Oh, we're we're going to win. We're in it to win it. I'm working really hard. My team is working really hard. People are really upset with Stauber. We have a huge advantage because uh Stauber's made it very easy um uh to run against him because of his atrocious voting record um and that he's accomplished nothing. So, we have a we I don't have a third party candidate in this race. And you know, national polling, state polling looks really good for Democrats. Um, And we're going to see a lot of people come out because of our attack on our rights, our right to reproductive health, our right to contraception, um, our rights to vote. All of our rights, freedoms are under attack and people are going to come out to vote in big numbers. We're going to see that it's going to help all Democrats um, up and down the ticket, but I'm not taking anything for granted. I am out there working really hard to get people to know me, to listen to their concerns, and to earn their vote. And I'm going to continue doing that through Election Day. I just want to encourage everybody to vote. Um, You can vote early and to vote um, DFL this election uh, and to vote for me. So thank you for for the interview.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. Jen Schultz, DFL candidate for Congress in Minnesota's 8th District. Uh, It was nice to talk to you.
3: You too, Thanks, Mike.
0: A reminder, we have asked uh, Congressman Pete Stauber to come on, too, and we look forward to talking to him soon. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's been another busy week in the 2022 campaign, just a little more than five weeks to go. To round out our program today, I'm joined by three of the best journalists covering the election here in Minnesota. Two of them from NPR News, our own Brian Baxt and Dana Ferguson are here. Hello.
4: Hi. Hey,
0: Mike. And we have a special guest who covers politics and government for the nonprofit, nonpartisan website MinPost, Peter Callahan. Peter, great to have you here. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. I wanted to start with this uh, story involving uh, the group called Feeding Our Future. That's the nonprofit alleged to be at the center of this massive fraud scheme that made off with at least $250 million, at least that's the allegation, in money, uh, COVID 19 relief money intended to feed school children during the pandemic. Uh, Dana Ferguson, this story's been out there for a while, but the charges came down from the U.S. attorney last week. And Republicans really tried to make it a campaign issue after a judge called out. Governor Walls on something he had to say. So bring us up to date on this thing.
4: Yeah, that's right, Mike. Um, It seemed like all week at the Capitol, it was day after day of press conferences with Republican candidates and elected officials saying, hey, this is really, really bad. The state should have done better on this. And here's what we think. And so at the beginning of the week, we heard from the Senate Majority Leader, Jeremy Miller, calling for the resignation of the Education Commissioner, Heather Mueller. Several other candidates who were running on the Republican ticket um, had a lot of ideas for how this kind of fraud could be avoided in the future. Uh, They want to bring in an inspector general to oversee state government, amp up some of the whistleblower laws in Minnesota, and uh, just basically find other ways to make sure this kind of fraud doesn't happen again. Uh, We heard from the governor at the middle of the week saying, you know, We stand by the position that the Department of Education found this pretty early. They flagged it. They let us know, and we let the feds know that this was a problem, that the USDA needed to take a look at this, and ultimately that the FBI got into it, investigated, and that the feds were able to bring charges. Mm. Does that mean it's going to stop being an issue on the campaign trail? I don't think so. I anticipate we're going to keep hearing about this for a while.
0: Brian Baxt, what do you think? Uh, can Republicans make this stick to Governor Walls and other Democrats?
5: They're certainly trying. Uh, they're, they're, they've been, as Dana said, holding press conference after press conference to make sure that this is something that gets covered and something that more people in the public learn about. And one of the difficulties here for the Attorney General and the and the Governor is. Their exclamation, explanations are a little bit harder to get your head around that. They knew this fraud was occurring, and yet the money somehow was still going out the door. They say that the FBI told them to keep it quiet, but the FBI isn't talking about it. So the FBI is not doing them any favors about how, what this interplay was. And the timeline still isn't entirely clear. It seems like every day when somebody talks about it, a date shifts here or there, or the uh, explanation as to why things went down as they did maybe shifts just just quite a bit and and the republicans have an easier messaging hmm. Two hundred fifty million dollars went missing somebody's to blame who's to blame how can we stop it and it will happen on their watch not ours
0: peter callahan what do you think uh i, I mean it seems like at least what this is doing for Republicans is changing the subject. Uh, nobody's talking about abortion this week. They're, everybody's talking about this.
1: Well, we have a new uh, saying in Minnesota politics, which is, let sleeping judges lie. <laughs> um, the judge in this case had been uh, somewhat accused of of letting this go and siding with the fraudsters, but hadn't said anything until uh, the governor, in a impromptu uh, Q&A, really called attention and tried to call out this judge, and then the judge said, okay, I'll make my statement. Uh, His statement is almost as uh, confusing as the governor's statement as far as who said what when. Um, Judges can be uh, lawyers, I hear, and they're very specific as to (laughs) what an order means, and an order is something that they sign and you sign, And there was no such order in this case, but if you read the transcripts, he sure sounded like he was telling them to do certain things and not do other things. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're explaining that, if you're a Democrat, you're losing at that point. Yeah, Um, and Brian, you
0: brought up the Attorney General. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like that's a a campaign where it's tight, at -hmm. least according to the polls, and. they're re- uh, uh, Jim Schultz the, mm-hmm. the Republican candidate is really mm-hmm. trying to stick it to Keith Ellison
5: yeah he, he's saying that the the charities division which is part of the Attorney General's office to kind of keep track of which charities are doing things on the up and up he's saying that didn't happen here and 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 obviously the, the explanation from the Attorney General Keith Ellison is, is different he's saying that we were involved we were counseling the Department of Education they were our client and then we were working with the FBI as well but they haven't as I mentioned, gotten the side of the story out from the FBI. They've, they've, they've put out words that were complimentary by federal authorities about the cooperation between the agency at the state level and the federal level. But the FBI has yet to say, yes, we wanted them to keep quiet so we can see this fraud in motion and to keep people from leaving the country. Uh, there's been about $50 million that we know of that's been recovered so far, but that's that's only a fraction, of a fifth of, of what was the purported fraud out there. Hmm. So it's it's unclear as to whether the rest of the money is going to come back in. And Jim Schultz is saying, hey, look, the, the charities division needs to be on top of this stuff more. Maybe they issue subpoenas in cases like this, get bank records. Uh, and Keith Ellison is trying to make the case that it wasn't our agency that was investigating. We were we were helping the Department of Education, but it was the federal government that was investigating the loss of federal money. Right. And we should we should be clear about that because this was a big
0: chunk of money that came from the federal government because of COVID-19. It was pumped into this mm-hmm. existing system that had never done anything like this before. And uh, this is apparently the result. I mean, 49 people charged with felonies.
5: Well, and some of the oversight controls that were relaxed during the early part of the pandemic when even government employees were not working in the field. They were working from home. Uh, this was during the uh, final months of the Trump administration where the the Fed said, you don't have to go out to these sites. And some people are saying they should have gone out to these sites anyway. They should have noticed that there were these inflated numbers about how many meals are being served And some of these locations. Apartment buildings and, and small strip malls, mm-hmm. could they really have accommodated that many meals per day or the amount per week that were were said to have been delivered.
0: Hmm. Dana Ferguson, do you think the voters are picking up on this?
4: I think they're starting to. um, I've been out with candidates this week going door knocking, seeing what people are talking about uh, when they're just out there at their own homes, not at campaign events or anything like that. And they're starting to get a sense that, you know, this is a big deal, that this is a lot of money that was lost. They're worried about it. But there are a lot of other issues that come up before folks start talking about fraud or about other things. Um, Some of their bigger concerns were around crime and public safety, their perceptions that there aren't enough police officers out there keeping them safe, that their communities aren't as safe as they'd like them to be, and about schools, making sure that kids get caught back up after COVID, um, and also about nobody really likes property taxes going up. So Mm -hmm. across the board, that was something that people wanted to talk to candidates about.
0: And Peter Callahan, you did a story on MinnPost this week about the uh, campaign for the legislature. Um, kind of a dueling set of issues there, uh, Democrats versus Republicans.
1: Yeah, it, it was interesting to have the DFL and then the GOP tell me about what they don't hear or do hear on the doors. And it, it's incredible. If you're a Republican who knocks on a door, no one mentions abortion. <laughs> but if you're a Democrat who knocks on the door, everybody talks about abortion. Um, so I think the Republicans are doing a bit of whistling through the graveyard by saying that abortion is not an issue it is an issue uh it may not be number 1 or number 2 but it's a strong number 3 uh behind crime and and uh inflation so and it it also could be a motivating issue uh a, a registration issue and a, a turnout issue which benefits them so um, it's sort of, you emphasize the issues that really benefit you politically. And that's what's going on with the legislative races right now.
0: And with the Democrats, it's abortion. With the Republicans, it's crime and inflation. Correct. Um, do you get any sense? Uh, you know, we had a poll, and you, you mentioned the issues sort of in order of the economy, crime, and abortion. That's what our poll showed. Um, do you get a sense of, of how that, plays out in terms of things like turnout and and voter excitement.
1: Well, I just I think with internal polls that, that campaigns do are getting the same things and they're also uh, test marketing messages and how to message on those issues. And usually you can tell what they're seeing and getting from their polls by how they're phrasing and how they're setting up their direct mail and how they're setting up their television ads. Um, the the r- crime is definitely an issue. You're mm. going to see a lot of burning buildings. On brochures and in TV ads, uh, and sort of this sense of lawlessness is the way the Republicans are trying to push that. But they'll they'll say, "Boy, if we could get back to the spring, we were we were rocking this state. Mm. We were going to just kill them in this state." And then June twenty-four happens, and the Dobbs decision comes out, and it it didn't completely reverse it, but it made it back into sort of a fifty-fifty kind of a proposition, depending on the district. Um, and, again, we still think that this thing is won and lost in suburban districts uh, that tend to swing back and forth, that may be trending DFL, but no one's going to say they're blue districts. And that's where I think the election will continue to be waged and won or lost.
0: Mm-hmm. And Brian Beck's, uh, we've talked about that in mm-hmm. the past for sure. Um was the, I thought the way Peter framed it there was kind of interesting because in the spring Republicans were very confident. Mm-hmm. So was this election going to be sort of a base election, and who whose base was more excited was going to have the advantage, and that that abortion decision sort of uh, mixed that up a little bit.
5: Midterm elections are like that because they are generally lower term elections and presidential year elections, and so both sides are working really hard to motivate. The respective bases. That's why you're hearing Democrats talk so much about abortion, even if maybe voters don't put it at the top, because they feel like that's the way that they can build enthusiasm. That remember this: these women's rights that were were enshrined for all those years, they might not be as safe as you think. Republicans will note that that Minnesota has its own uh, court precedent. Obviously, that's you know a court precedent was was in place in the national level too, and that that changed. But but it is clearly. A motivator for certain people who may have even sat out the election may decided that they were going to vote on other issues. I'm not saying that they're going to vote on this issue but but it's in their it's in their minds it's in their calculus as they go out in November
0: and Dana did you said you were out with uh, knocking on some doors with some politicians Did people bring up the abortion issue out there?
4: Yeah, a few of them did, and predominantly those people indicated that they're going to vote pretty straight Democrat across the ticket. Um, But people are worried about that. They're worried about losing a right about if control should change in the legislature and if the governor flips over. Um, We've heard some candidates say that this is a priority. They'd like to add additional restrictions to abortion. And they're really worried about that. Something I heard quite a bit about, too, is concerns after January 6th, uh, the riots at the Capitol. That folks are really concerned about protecting the right to vote, protecting democracy, um, and that's really motivating them too.
1: Hmm.
0: And Brian, as as we get to the past uh, or the next five weeks, the Mm -hmm. last five weeks of the campaign, uh, Democrats have a big uh, money advantage to get their message out, right?
5: They, They do in in the legislative races. They seem the caucuses have more money, but there are a lot of these outside groups that can raise money in a snap and. We're not getting exactly the full picture because some outside groups structure themselves in a way where they don't have to report to state campaign regulators. But we know that they're active out there. Uh, But TV is going to be a big thing. You're going to. I mean, both campaigns are, uh, both Republicans and Democrats are, are really starting to ramp up. I saw some uh, uh, Republican Attorney General ads yesterday that were pretty bare knuckles by Minnesota standards, taking on Keith Ellison. We're going to see some on the Democratic side against Jim Schultz. And of course, the governor's camp- candidates have been airing quite a few commercials already. Uh, if I, I looked at some of the, the the spending, which I always often find interesting in the campaign reports, and 75% of Governor Walz's spending is on advertising. Uh, 55% of, of Scott Jensen's spending has been on advertising. Obviously, he had to do more grassroots stuff to get the, the nomination. Mm-hmm. But you, you can tell that that's the types of campaigns they're going to run is, is what you see in the mailbox, what you see on your TV, what you hear on your radio. Well, great. We
0: can all look forward to that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter, uh, you work for Minpost. I thought Walker Orenstein had a, a really good piece this morning uh, on Minpost about uh, the Jensen, Scott Jensen campaign, Republican for governor, uh, really trying to do well in rural areas of the state and and sort of up his vote out there. Compared to previous uh, statewide elections, Uh, we heard a lot about that really earlier in the year after, or last year after the uh, election in Virginia, where uh, Democrats really fell through the floor in rural parts of that state. Um, Are you seeing that in the legislative races too? Is is there a lot of talk about that?
1: And you you have redistricting that's done by judges, so it's not supposed to be partisan, right? But you still got two hundred and one. legislative districts across the state, and we think 20 to 25 are in play. Because if you're out in uh, greater Minnesota, it's very hard to find a district that's close or winnable for the DFL. And certainly if you're in the cities, the the, the DFL people are winning you know, with 80% of the vote. So it's uh, on a statewide race, generally, the Democrats have done very well, seven, eight, 10 points. If, if Amy Klobuchar is on the ballot, uh, Democrats have won the legisl the house, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this numbers game that that uh, Jensen's playing, which is I just need to expand that vote as much as I can. I then need to try to cut into the Twin Cities vote on crime and on inflation, particularly in the suburbs, to just kind of tra- train the uh, change the calculus a little bit. He doesn't have to win the Twin Cities; uh he just needs to carve it down somewhat. And he's going to win greater Minnesota. He wants to win it by enough more to compensate for these votes that he's losing. It's very uh, geographically fractured, um, and and it's something that – Can show up in a statewide race where you're counting every vote together and doesn't show up as much in legislative races. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Brian, you think that could be an effective strategy?
5: Well, if you look at, again, some of these places where uh, Scott Jensen is spending money, he's got ads on Telemundo and he's got some ads in some uh, culturally specific uh, newspapers and stuff. He's not expected to win certain demographic segments. But as Peter said, if he loses them less badly, that could make the difference in a tight race. And that, of course, will be translated down the ballot to some of these other statewide races that are already shaping up to be quite tight.
0: few uh, seconds really left. What are you looking for next week?
4: We're going to hear from Senate Republicans about the state's clean car rules. Um, really... Punching back on those, they've not been big fans, but that'll be on Monday, so that's what I'm watching.
5: Sometime next week, the state will say how much is going out in those pandemic bonus checks. So it's a chance for the administration to say, "Here's money going out to you at a time when you're dealing with a tight pocketbook."
1: Well, we want you all to uh, uh, keep your coverage going because we're probably going to go out uh, in with our poll in the field uh, either end of next week or the first of the following week. So uh, let them know. uh, that we're coming and what they're going to talk about.
0: All right. Peter Callahan from Minpost, Brian Baxt, and Dana Ferguson from NPR News. Thanks so much for being here. That'll do it for our Friday program. Our producers were Twyla Dang and Jeff Jones, technical director Alex Simpson. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week.